If you've got a Bible with you, would you turn to Acts chapter 2, please? If you haven't got one with you and you'd like to be helped to follow, there are plenty of Bibles on the shelves at the back. Feel free to go and help yourself to one. Acts chapter 2, Jowsha Jow is going to read that for us. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 41. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies 
a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the other apostles, "Brothers, what shall we do?" Peter replied, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." The promise is for the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, "Save yourselves from this corrupt generation." Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about three thousand were added to their number that day. There's so much that we need God for, so many needs in us and around us, and we're going to bring some of them to God now. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, we praise you because you are and you always have been a father. There is no greater love in the universe than this love—the love you, as father, have for your son. And the Bible describes you as the. As the one from whom all fatherhood come, and so on this Father's Day we pray for fathers. Thank you for the many fathers there are here in this building, and we pray for the fathers here to resist the attitude of our society and see the importance of their role, to have confidence in the position you have given them, and so lead with authority, and love, and kindness. And gentleness, and humility, and reliance on you, and unity with their wives, and with their example, teaching their children to respect their mothers. And so, Father, we pray for the children here to be brought up in the training and discipline of the Lord by godly fathers and mothers. Father, we pray this morning for individuals here with us with particular needs. We pray you'd comfort Roger Blackman following the death of his sister. Please help him with all the practicalities that he has to sort out. And thank you for the people who are being a help to him in this. We pray for Peter White、uh, leaving Loughborough after his time here as a student. Please help him to find a job. Help him and his parents、uh, to work at adjusting to him being back, living at home with them. And please, Father, may he be a member of his local church down there in Wiltshire, who serves you faithfully and fruitfully. 
Father, please be with Peter Senior in this week ahead. Thank you. He's managed to travel to Bali to be with his daughter who's been so seriously injured in an accident. May they enjoy being together. May she get all the treatment and care that she needs. And please give her recovery. But most of all, Father, please uh, may you use this great um, shaking up she's had. And there have been other events in her life recently that have really shaken her up. Use them to wake her up to her need of you, of salvation, of eternal life. Please, Father, have mercy on her and her boyfriend, Alex. Father, we bring to you bigger issues in this world. Thank you. None of them are too big for us to bring to you. And so we pray as we have prayed many times, please bring peace to Ukraine. Father, it's clearly beyond humans. There is no human managing to sort this out at all. But it is certainly not beyond you. So please frustrate the plans of wicked people. Restrain the violent. Protect the innocent. And even, Father, please bring good out of evil. Thank you the Bible doesn't tell us we have to pretend everything is good. There are things that are so bad and evil. And yet, thank you, you specialise in bringing good out of evil. You've already saved many and uh, drawn many to the Lord Jesus there in Ukraine. Please do so more. And, Father, although it's less in the news, we know there are many people being killed in Nigeria. So much bloodshed there. Please protect your people. May government, the government nationally and the authorities locally care about justice and be effective in protecting people from Islamic terrorists. Have mercy on your people. May they not resort to retaliation, but respond in a Christ-like way. Father, these are big prayers, but you are almighty and you are love. So we bring them to you confidently, in Jesus' name. Amen. Parents, if you've got children who are preschool or year reception to year three, we've got groups for those. If you want your children to go to them, uh, then they're free to do so now. If you want them to stay here with you, that's absolutely fine. But that's available now if you go out of the door at the back and someone will show you the way to go. While they're going, a few notices for you. This Thursday, we're meeting as usual to pray at 8 o'clock here. Um, But a little differently from usual, we have Jonathan Robinson with us, who many of us know, along with his wife Naomi, is a missionary in Senegal, but is here in, uh, well, Shepshed at the moment, and he's going to come and give us an update on what his family are up to and uh, how God is leading them to serve him by spreading the gospel in Senegal, in West Africa. That's this Thursday at 8 o'clock. The following Thursday, that I think is the 30th of June, at 8 o'clock we've got a church members meeting, our annual church members meeting. 7.30. 7.30, thank you, Barclay. 7.30. Please don't come at 8, come at 7.30 if you're a church member. We've got important business to sort out, like appointing reappointing some elders and a deacon. We also have an at-home day coming up, and Peter's going to come and tell us about that. Okay, so... um, 
final notice for me for our at-home day. So next, this Saturday is our at-home day. Um, we're going to start at about 9.30, so come from 9.30 onwards. Um, our first session will be at 10 o'clock. Um, how you can prepare for that? So we've got two sessions in the morning on uh, strength and weakness, so come ready to listen to that. Um, ready to have some time of discussion afterwards as we come together as a church family. Um, we've then got a, uh, a lunch time, so it is a, uh, a bring your own lunch, um, so bring your own food for that. Um, the weather should be pretty good, it looks like, so we're going to hopefully have a picnic outside, so bring picnic blankets, chairs for your family, and we'll hopefully go into the field next door here, um, and we'll have lunch out there. Um, so bring your own lunch. Um, also, there'll be times of um, refreshments. Um, if you'd like to, then please um, bring some bakes and cakes for that. Um, we could be able to share those together. Um, we'll have some time of refreshments at the start and then also in between the two talks um, for that. Um, and then on the day, um, we're, we're a church family coming together. So if there's something that needs to be done, please chip in. If you see someone who needs a hand helping out with either certain refreshments or activities, um, and then please just join together and it should be a really great day of fellowship. Thank you, Peter. I've been asked what time it's ending, and I think the four. Okay. And there was some question about whether we'd have a time of singing together at the end. Is that that's not happening, Barclay? Probably not. Probably not. Okay. But we're thinking that we'll finish at about four on Saturday. We're going to sing a famous psalm that Natasha has chosen for us to sing.
Now, you all know by now that later this morning we're seeing three people being baptised here. And it raises the question, who should be baptised? Who is baptism for? I want us to find out from the Bible, from the example of some of the first people ever to be baptised. Not quite the first ever, but near the first ever people. Let's turn back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now, I've, I've asked the question, who should be baptised? But I'm not doing this this morning just for information. Not just so you can go home saying, right, good, I can answer the question about who should be baptised. Because the answer to this question also tells you who, how to become a Christian. How to become a Christian. That means what you'll hear now this morning is far more important than just answering the question, who should be baptised? It's about a far bigger issue. So if you're not a Christian, I want to be really open and honest with you this morning. No hidden motives here. I'm going to be completely open and honest. My aim is that you should become a Christian. And I say that without embarrassment, because belonging to Jesus, having him as your Lord, that is the best life. And I want that for you. So I'm asking the question, who should be baptised? But I've just been open and honest with you what my real motive is to tell you how to become a Christian so you should become one. If you are a Christian, well, I'm telling this to you to help you clearly tell others. How can they become a Christian? Now, I'm getting this from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 41. So, real help if you could have that open in front of you. Verses 22 to 41. What we have there in front of us in the Bible is a sermon. This is the record of a sermon that was preached on a particular day nearly 2,000 years ago. So, this morning, I'm copying someone else's sermon. I can be honest with you again. I'm copying someone else's sermon, the Apostle Peter's sermon. It's been preached before by him. Now, I'm not going to go through and explain everything he said. I'm not going to go through verse by verse and explain it all. What I'm going to do is show you what Peter was getting across in his sermon. What was he aiming at? And, if God helps, I'm going to do the same thing. That's the aim, not to go through all the details and explain the whole passage, but try to do the same thing that Peter was doing. What was he doing? Well, to become a Christian, to be baptised, you must, is the first thing his sermon is getting at. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's very easy to see the main message of Peter's sermon. Because after a bit of introduction in verses 14 to 21, because something's got the people's attention and, and he's latching onto that so he can speak to them. After a bit of introduction, he tells us a subject right near the start, verse 22. He launches straight into, here's the subject, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth. There's the subject, Jesus of Nazareth. There was this man called Jesus and he came from Nazareth. 
What did Peter say about Jesus of Nazareth? It's very easy, actually, to see Peter's structure. It's this, his life, verse 22, the life of Jesus. His death, that's verse 23, the death of Jesus. His resurrection, coming back from the dead, that's verse 24 to 35, the resurrection of Jesus. Why was he telling them these things? Where was it all driving to? Well, it's all building to a conclusion in verse 36, the end of his sermon. Verse 36, here's the conclusion. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's all building to this. His life, his death, his resurrection, all show Jesus is the Lord and the Christ. Now, most of us are familiar with Lord Jesus Christ, as if it's a name, but it's not. Jesus is the only part of that that's a name. Lord and Christ are titles. And they mean this. Jesus was the one God promised to send. For hundreds of years, he'd been promising that he would send someone who would mend the broken relationship between us humans and God. For hundreds of years, he'd been promising he'd send a ruler, his representative to rule the whole world. And Peter's sermon is all saying this, Jesus' life, death and resurrection show he is this Lord and Christ. And that means his death wasn't just wicked men nailing him to a cross on a great tragedy, it was actually God's plan, promised in the Bible, to take the punishment we deserve for treating God as if he's not God. By the way, I've just described to you verse 23 that says, yes, you wickedly did it, but it was God's plan all along. God had got a better aim behind it. Peter is persuading them to believe Jesus is Lord and Christ. He wants them to have faith. Now, I wonder what you think faith is. Faith. You've all heard the word faith. Have you heard of Mark Twain? Famous American author wrote books like Huckleberry Finn and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. He said this, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Sorry about the slang there. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Well, that's just putting bluntly what a lot of people think, Christian faith and religious faith. That's just shut your eyes and hope for the best and try to persuade yourself to believe it, although you know really it's not real. That's not what Christian faith is. Not at all what Christian faith is. And so Peter here, he gives evidence. His sermon is about giving evidence to these people to persuade them to believe that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Now, I'm going to take the same approach, but I'm going to need to adjust it because we are not Jewish people in first century Jerusalem, which gave Peter some big advantages who he was speaking to. And we're 2,000 years later in a very different place. So I'm going to need to adjust it. But I'm going to try to take his evidence and adjust it. Here's his first piece of evidence. What people saw. What people saw. He could appeal to them. Verse 22. Look, you know about Jesus because loads of people around here saw him do miracles. And then he could tell them, verse 32, that he and many others saw Jesus die and then saw him later alive again. 
So he could appeal to what they had seen. Many of them had seen this Jesus and seen him do amazing things. And he could tell them what he and many others had seen. Now that needs adjusting for us because we're 2,000 years later and none of us saw those events. So the question for us is, do we have reliably passed down to us the records of what people saw? Now, that's a massive subject. Obviously, I hope you all recognise, I can't give us a study on that now. Massive subject. But I can point out, ancient copies of parts of the New Testament dating right back to the first century have been found. I can point out that the accounts we have here of the life of Jesus have been compared with other other evidence from that time period. And the details in these accounts, and they are very detailed, which you don't do when you're making something up because you'll get caught out. The details in these accounts have been examined thoroughly to see do they match up. And all show we have here reliable eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. His first evidence is what people saw, which has been passed down to us. His second evidence he he brings to them is what the scriptures say. Peter's sermon, did you notice as it was read to us, was full of quotes from what we now call the Old Testament. They called the scriptures, the writings. And he shows that those Old Testament writings matched up with what happened to Jesus. His life, his death and his resurrection. Now, he was speaking to Jewish people and they accepted the authority of scripture. You might not. I, I, I presume that there are people here who don't accept the authority of this book. I think that's just an ancient book, isn't it? Some people believe. But you must take notice of this. This book, written by many different people, in many different places, across many different centuries, all fits together and keeps on pointing to one man, Jesus. And it even has parts written centuries before Jesus that tell us what would happen to Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, in detail. If you're not a Christian, here's a question to ask yourself. How did that happen unless this is a message from God? Peter's second bit of evidence, because faith isn't a leap in the dark, it's based on evidence, is what the scriptures say. His third bit of evidence is Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, the bulk of Peter's sermon is spent on persuading the listeners Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. And he does that, as I've said, by appealing to what people saw and the scriptures. But it's also another bit of evidence for us. Because think of this. Peter was preaching in Jerusalem. The very city where Jesus was killed. Only a few weeks after it happened, the city where his tomb was, the city where the authorities were pushing an alternative explanation, the city where it would be so easy to disprove a false claim. And yet they didn't. And yet many were persuaded. I'll give you an example of how we can know from history that many were persuaded and persuaded very early on. Have a look back at verse 10, if you've got that in front of you. And you've got a list of where some of these people came from. 
You see, of course, many of them came from Jerusalem, but many were in visiting from elsewhere because it was a special religious festival time. And verse 10 says some of them were from Rome, from Rome, the capital city. Now, historical evidence outside the Bible tells us just 30 years later in 64 AD, there was a great fire in Rome, probably started by the wicked emperor Nero. But whether he started it or not, he wanted someone to blame. And he looked around for a group, a minority, because it's good to attack minorities, people think, but a big enough minority, people have heard of them. And he latched onto the Christians. Let's blame them. Now, what does that tell you? There were Christians in Rome just 30 years later. And enough of them for the emperor to notice. And writings by people who were not Christians tell us these people believed Jesus was alive from the dead. How were these people persuaded? How were they persuaded of such a thing? Because there were credible eyewitnesses and because God worked by his spirit. If you're not a Christian, here's another question that confronts you. You must face up to. How did Christianity ever get started? How did people get persuaded if Jesus stayed dead? Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Do you believe in him? Here's the second thing, though, that Peter's sermon is doing. Here's the second thing that we need if if you're going to become a Christian. Who should be baptised? People who believe Jesus is Lord and Christ. And secondly, you need to see you are a sinner. See you are a sinner. Someone I know spent all his childhood thinking his dad was dead. His mum told him that his dad had died when he was really little. When he was a late teenager, I think he was 18 or 19, he wanted to get married. But back in those days, being under 21, he needed both parents' permission. And his mum had to admit to him that she'd lied and his dad was alive. Their marriage had broken up and she'd lied to him. And so, at 18 or 19 years old, he discovered his dad was alive and he met him for the first time. Wow, what sort of event must that have been? That must have changed everything, including his idea of who he was. Now, for the crowd in Jerusalem, discovering Jesus is alive and is Lord and Christ, that changed everything, including their idea of who they were. Before, they thought, We are good people. Okay, not perfect. Who's perfect? But we're the good people. We're the religious people. We're on God's side and he's on our side. And now they discover, verse 36, verse 36, now they discover, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. They've murdered the Lord and the Christ that they supposedly were waiting for. That makes them enemies of God, guilty sinners. Now let's adjust that for ourselves. I'm trying to take what Peter did and do it for us. And it needs some adjusting. Because we didn't nail Jesus to the cross. But that Jesus isn't just another religious teacher. But he came back from the dead, showing himself to be Lord and Christ. That means there is a God who is involved in this world. 
That means there is a creator who doesn't just leave us to do our own thing. And that changes everything, including our idea of who we are. I'll try to illustrate it like this. Imagine a stately home, maybe like Chatsworth. Seen Chatsworth in Derbyshire? Wonderful, big stately home. And the Duke of Devonshire owns it. It's his home. And it's run by loads of servants. And imagine the Duke, he goes away for a while, and he leaves the servants there to care for the home, to follow his instructions, to represent him. And while he's away, the servants act as if it's their home. They act as if there's no such person as the Duke. After a while, they probably even forget him. Now, most of them are polite and friendly to each other. Most of them are quite civil in how they speak to each other. Some, Yes, some of them mistreat the house, but only some of them. All of them eat the food from the kitchen and the gardens. And none of them think about the Duke or take any notice of what he's said to do. They live as if he's not relevant. Now, if the stately home represents this world and the Duke represents God, have I just described you? Are you one of those servants? You, you might be polite and friendly to others, or you might mistreat God's world, but you live as if God isn't relevant and you don't belong to him. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to see you are a sinner. And then here's the third one, a sense of need, a sense of need. You see, there's all sorts of different categories of belief. If I told you Henry VIII had six wives, would you believe me? Yeah, I'm sure you would, wouldn't you? Because you probably got taught that at school. Does it affect how you live? Do you do anything about it? No, I don't suppose so. If I told you in Antarctica it's currently minus 60 degrees Celsius, would you believe me? Yeah, you ought to, because according to Google, that's right at the moment. Yeah? Does it affect how you live? Put your thickest coat on. No, it's not relevant to you, is it? If I was to say, there's a snake under your chair, if you believed me, would that affect you? Yeah. I once did this in a children's talk, and one of the children said, yes, I'd get down and have a look at it. That wasn't what I expected. No. But you would do something, wouldn't you? You probably wouldn't get down and have a look at it. You might stand on your chair, you might scream, you might freeze, but you'd think there is something, if you believe it, You'll do something about it. There are some truths, if you believe them, you cannot be casual about them. You cannot be relaxed and just think, oh, well, not, nothing to do with me. Some beliefs demand action now. And you can see that in the crowd listening to Peter. Verse 37. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. It got to their hearts. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You see, they were Jewish people, as I've said. And they knew God isn't a laid back, not too bothered God. Oh, come on, let's, let's just chill out. They knew God is rightly angry with acting as if he's not God. Because he's good. And he will not put up with our lack of goodness. They they knew that God doesn't put up with us acting as if we set what's right and wrong. They knew they couldn't just go home and say, 
We'll have a think about that and do something about it one day. How about you? Jesus is Lord and Christ. That means that there is a God who's involved in this world and we've sinned against him. Are those two statements to you like Henry VIII had six wives? Or do they get you saying, verse 37, what shall we do? Well, what shall we do? Here's the next thing we need. Fourth thing, repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, see you're a sinner, have a sense of need and repent. Verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptised, every one of you. Now, before I get into explaining what that means, first, don't miss this amazing thing, that there is an answer to their question. That is amazing that there is an answer to their question. Think about it. They have killed the one God's promised. Well, you can't undo that. You can't put that right. You can't get worse than that. When they say, what shall we do? Surely expected answer is nothing. Too late. You've had it. You've just got all hell coming to you. That there is an answer, that there is something they can do. It's all because God is loving and merciful and ready to forgive. And that has all been proved and made definite by, ironically, the thing they did. Jesus dying on the cross. And because of that, there is something they can do. Verse 38, Peter replied, repent. What is repenting? It simply means turning. That's that's what is at the root of the word, turn. Now, I'll give an illustration of this, and some of you here have heard it more than once before. But my aim is not to be original. My aim is that we do repent. So here's my illustration again. Holidays are coming up. It's summertime. And you go to Cornwall and... You've got children along with you and you think, let's go for a nighttime walk. That's a fun thing to do. And so you drive on your car up to somewhere near the Cornish cliffs and you get out and, wow, not realise it would be that dark. And the children shoot off from the car and run off ahead. And you know there is a cliff ahead, one of those massive Cornish cliffs. But it's so dark, they can't see it and you can't see them. What are you going to do? Well, you might shout, stop, stop where you are. Now turn round and follow my voice and come back to me. And that's a picture of what repenting is. Stop, stop going your way. Turn, follow the voice of Jesus and come back to him. That's repenting. These people in Acts 2 had started to repent because their thoughts about Jesus had turned completely round. Their thoughts about themselves had turned completely round. And now they're called, because of that, turn your way of living. Turn from doing your own thing, confident in yourself, to obeying Jesus, confident in him. What about you? Have you repented? Will you? If you do, look what's promised. Verse 38. Verse 38. What is promised to them? 
Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Wow, here are two massive gifts. Oh, this is such good news. Forgiveness. Every sin wiped off God's record of you. Do you know he keeps records? He is a good God. He is a right God. And he takes notice of our lives. You can have every sin, everything wrong, wiped off the record, wiped completely clean. Nothing held against you by God. And here's the other one, the Holy Spirit. God at work in you, bringing you new life and a new motive for living and new desires and a new power for living as God intended. Forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. Wow. This is what you and I need. This is good news. There couldn't be better news. But it's also true news. We've heard this morning, it's not just a nice thing to believe. There's evidence. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. So will you now repent? Let's pray.